Let me lead us in prayer as we come to the Bible talk. We ask, Heavenly Father, that as we look at your word, that we would have a fresh and exciting picture of your good news, the gospel. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. From the moment that the new decade began, our world has been feeling more and more powerless. And more and more we're realising that we are not in control. In Australia, we've been experiencing the anguish of bushfires that could not be extinguished by humans nor by our fancy machines. And the painful droughts have seen rivers and dams full of dust. And all we could do was pray. We're not in control. And we prayed and God sent us rain and rain and rain and lots of us and our dams filled and our rivers filled and our houses filled with water. And we see that in all of this, we are not in control. And now there's the coronavirus. This deadly flu is spreading across the globe at a scary pace. And even though we are smarter than ever before in medicine and in science, we don't know what to do. We're not in control. Now, if all that mattered in life right now was the right now, then in a sense we would see nothing good about the fires or the floods or the droughts or the pandemic. But in the midst of these tragedies, there is actually something good, and that is that these natural disasters are a wake-up call. They're bad, but they're good in the sense that they're a wake-up call to us because there's more to life than just what we see because there is eternity. We're not in control, and we know that now's the time to turn to the true God of the universe. We prayed for rain, and we keep praying for rain for those who are out west, and we're also praying now for the coronavirus, that this horrible virus will just stop, that something will happen and it'll stop spreading, and that there'll be a cure, that there'll be some sort of miraculous end to it. And we're praying, why? Because we know that we're powerless. We're not in control. And so now more than ever, I think, it's the time to talk about eternity. It's the time for us as a nation, as a world, to realise that even though we have got so smart and so rich and so powerful, we're not in control. So what do we do? Well, we need to know Jesus. How do we know Jesus? We know Jesus through the gospel. The word gospel is used a lot, isn't it? You might have a, a gospel music or a gospel message or a gospel choir or all sorts of gospel things. But quite simply, the gospel is a message and a gospel message that is powerful. We read in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that it is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. See, the gospel is the way that a person finds peace with God. And the gospel is the way that a person gains eternal life with Jesus. And the gospel is the way that a person gets salvation from God. And that means that there is nothing more important in the universe than knowing the gospel. It's the most important message of all. And that's why, amongst other things, that we're going to look at it today. We're starting a two-week mini-series called Know and Tell the Gospel. This week it's Know the Gospel. Next week it's Tell the Gospel. 
And the title of these two talks is based on a book called Know and Tell the Gospel, which I bought when I was a teenager by a a wonderful man, John Chapman, who you've heard heard me talk about before, Chapo. It was a book I bought just as a, a teenager and a relatively young Christian, and I remember reading the book and saying, wow, this is actually really quite simple and straightforward. And what's more, it's not hard to tell people about it too. And I think that was one of the key things that revved me up to want to live a life telling people about Jesus. So I'm hoping that today and also next week that we'll all be set on fire by the, by the wonderful message of the gospel and be also equipped to be able to talk to people about it as well. So what then is the gospel? Well, we're going to look at five verses in particular from the start of the book of Romans. Now, the translation that we use, the New Living Translation, doesn't use the word gospel. It uses the word good news with capital G and capital N. And it all goes back to the one word in the original language, which can be translated as good news, or it can be translated as great news, as huge news. But bear that in mind as we have a read of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, which I'll read out now, about this good news, the gospel. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. Well, it kicks off, and we what exactly does it say about the gospel? Well, it starts off by making it clear that it is God's gospel. It is God's gospel. Look again at the first verse. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle, and sent out to preach his good news. It's the good news of God. Now, it starts off here all about... This guy, Paul, the Apostle Paul, we know him well in our church. He's written more of the New Testament than anyone else. And this first sentence here in the Bible, in the book of Romans in the Bible, helps us understand just what Paul is like. It's a sort of a mini biography. You know, when you go to get a book, you want to see if there's someone talking about science, whether they've actually even studied science or they've just sort of worked out a few things on the internet themselves as a hobby. You kind of look at the biography and see, well, is it actually worthwhile? Is it credible or not? You look at their biography. This is his biography. And he kicks off by saying that he's a slave of Christ Jesus. He's someone who has surrendered himself to Jesus as his slave. Who on earth would want to become a slave? Are you serious? I want to be free. I want to be able to have the, the right to do anything I like, whenever I like, whatever I choose. I don't want anybody else controlling me, surely. And yet Paul, right off the bat, says, you want to know the first thing I'm going to tell you about me? I'm a slave. I've given up my rights. I've thrown the keys of my life to Jesus. And that's because I trust him. 
I trust him with my life. But we in Australia don't like to give up our rights. I think it's probably a, a, a human thing, really. Uh, you see it every time when there's another election. Some people will say, it is your right to have X, Y, and Z, and so I'll get that for you. And you think, oh, I'll vote for you because I've got rights that I'm not being fed. Or, or maybe, if they're particularly courageous, they will then say, oh, well, I, I want us to give up something because I think it'll be good for our nation. We tend to see that when people tweak with, say, Medicare, our universal health care, uh, that people generally don't give up the rights to that kind of thing very easily, and it usually performs pretty badly at the polls. Hey, I've got this great idea. Let's have a Medicare co-payment. No, let's never do that again. It, it, we don't like giving up our rights. So why would the Apostle Paul say, I'm giving up my rights to my life? Well, he would only do that if he was able to trust the person he gave his rights to. And he knew that the one that he gave his rights to, were at, that he was actually going to have a better life than if he kept driving his car himself. He surrendered his rights to God because he knew the goodness and the kindness of God. When a person walks down the aisle on their wedding day, they give up some rights. They actually say, I am now living for you, not for me. It's a right that's been given up that, that should be bringing pleasure and benefit, but is also at the same time a cost. I think that's a little bit of a picture of what it means to be a slave of Christ as well. But right at the start, Paul also talks about a special event that happened to him. We read it already, the second half of verse 1. Paul's chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news, his, his gospel. Uh, Again, he's talking about his Damascus Road experience. Uh, this was when he went from being a hater of Christianity to being a lover of Christianity, from being a hater of Christ to a lover of Christ, uh, to being somebody who had a mission to wipe out Christianity that was now replaced by a mission to grow Christianity through the preaching of the gospel, the good news. This is what being an apostle means. An apostle is a person who is sent, a sent representative, someone who has been commissioned, kind of like said, your mission should you choose to accept it, and off you go. Paul has done that, and it has changed his whole life. This is his hobby horse. I reckon if you, if you met Paul in the shops, you know, you're going down to Freddo's to get a couple of litres of milk, and you say, and you say, oh, who are you? I'm Paul. Oh, tell me a bit about you. Well, Damascus Road, bang, it's like, wow, that's the first thing that comes to mind? Of course it is. It's the thing that has shaped his entire life when he was hit on the head by Jesus, blinded by the light, 180 degrees, everything converted and commissioned, all of that in that moment. He'll just say, this is the thing that characterised my life. I think on his tombstone with, with the Apostle Paul, other than slave of Jesus Christ, he would certainly say an apostle, and he would probably somewhere squeeze the word Damascus Road because it's such a key part of who he is. So he's sent to do that. He's sent to speak this good news. Now, what is this good news? As I said already, it, the word can be translated as good news or great news or even just like huge news. I, I kind of like the, the huge news idea of the gospel. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit like when you hear something that you know is going to change the world. It's those things that when you hear it, you oh, sorry, today you can still remember where you were when you heard it. I can still remember where I was when I heard that Princess Diana was injured in the car. I can still remember. I was at a certain person's place and 
and I can remember where I was when I heard that the Olympics were announced. Juan Antonio Samaranch, the winner is Sydney. I remember where I was, what time and where and everything. And when I and September 11, and and the first time I turned on the TV and saw the twin towers on fire, I remember where I was. It's like it's still fresh to me. They were big bits of news, and there are even more big bits of news more recently where you think, whoa, that is going to change the world. It's going to change my life. It's going to change everything. That's the league of the gospel. It's the kind of news that when the person hears it the first time, they should say, wow, you are saying to me that Jesus died for me. You're saying that he rose from the dead. You're saying that if I believe and obey him, then my life has changed and I have eternal life. Whoa. That is as big as hearing about the explosion in Chernobyl or whatever it is that I know was such a big event that will change history. But the gospel is not something that came out of the blue either. The gospel is also part of a master plan. Verse 2 tells us that God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's not like... God was just sort of having a bit of a you know, lack of creativity. He says, oh, look, I've written the Old Testament. What am I going to do now? Oh, hang on, gospel. Yeah, right, let's, let's workshop this. Oh, this could be a great book. And away you go. Now, he has known the gospel from before the creation of the world. And it's been promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, in the Old Testament. That's why we carry around big Bibles, because the Old Testament shows us that the New Testament is true. All the promises have come true. And with all of this, it's a reminder that age can bring credibility. Uh, it's sometimes a really good thing to be old or to have something old or, or something that has been around quite a long time. Uh, so much so that the smarties in marketing often will write on the front of a T-shirt, Billabong, established 1972, to sort of say, oh, all you new surf brands that have come up in the last 10 years... I've been around for now 40, 50, whatever years. Or R.M. Williams, established 1932. It's like, ah, that, that's, that's part of their brand, is that they've been around that long. How about this? The Gospel of God, established 4000 BC. Yeah, that's not bad. You know, it's kind of, it's got a bit of credibility. It's not something that suddenly came out of nowhere that's like, hey, we've got this brand new thing you need to think about. It's been around for a long time. In fact, indeed, before the creation of the world, God intended for Jesus to die and rise and to bring him to glory. Which brings us to the next point, and that is the gospel is all about Jesus. Verse 3 tells us the good news is about his son. The gospel is all about Jesus. I reckon we can very easily get this wrong. Often we can say that the gospel, you know, what's the gospel? Well, it's about how I become a Christian. The gospel is about how I become friends with God. It's about how I get my sins forgiven. It's about how I go to heaven. It's about, well, yes, but no, it's actually about Jesus. So you want to know, if you had to summarize the gospel in one word, it wouldn't be heaven. It wouldn't be forgiveness. It'd be Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. And so when you go to share the gospel with somebody, you might think, oh, I've got all these technical things I've got to do, boxes and bridges and, and stuff and colours. and I just, uh, Trust in Jesus and you'll be forgiven. Well, yeah, okay. Just talk about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. 
It is huge news about Jesus. But what in particular? Well, it goes on to say that in his earthly life, verse 3, he was born into King David's family line. Jesus was a human and still is. We read that he is a human descendant of David. It's important that we understand his humanity and his connectedness to the past, born into King David's family line, or quite literally, the, the seed of David. Now, why does that matter? Why is it important that he's got some royal blood in that sense? Why is it that he's, it's important that he's connected to King David of all people? Because from my memory, King David, he wasn't kind of the guy who you want to moral, model every moral of his life. You're kind of thinking, hmm, adultery and murder. I don't think we teach that in Sunday school, at least not positively. Uh, so you're saying it's good to be connected to King David? Well, yes. It's because King David was a prototype for the king of the universe. He was in so many ways exactly what we needed as a saviour, the one who was God's king, the one who served his... All this sort of stuff, the one who was sent out and set apart by God. And yet he was very sinful and he showed us what we needed. And so when Jesus comes along, we say he's another king in the king of line of David, but he's ticking all the boxes because he's without sin. But there's also a heavenly side to his ministry. Romans 4, 1 verse 4a says that, And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've seen the human side. Now we see, in a sense, more of the, the heavenly, the spiritual side, the, the divine side, the God side of Jesus. See, he is the ultimate king of God's people. But more than that, by his resurrection, he was appointed the son of God, which means that he is fully God. And this is, this is truly mind-blowing. Don't get used to this. Just keep being in awe of it. I've been asked at different times by my scripture class kids over the years, you know, well, why couldn't God just come down here and talk to us and show him his, himself to us? It's like, good question. Well, guess what he did? Really? And explain to them that Jesus was fully God. Imagine what it would be like to be able to look God in the eye like that. To be able to be in a room with him just like I am with you and to know that the one who was standing before me in the flesh, a certain height with a certain hair colour and nose and ears and all that kind of stuff, was actually the one, to quote that wonderful old song, you know, who flung, whose hands flung stars into space. You know, extraordinary really. That's the picture of Jesus. Jesus is fully human and fully God. But notice here, it's the resurrection that is such a big thing here. It's the resurrection that shows that he is the Son of God. And I've got to say again that the gospel hangs on the resurrection. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago as we looked at God's glorious judgment in the Easter. But it is no exaggeration that the resurrection of Jesus is, is the hinge on which the credibility of Christianity holds. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are still dead in our sins and our faith is futile. It's all a big waste of time. You know, if they were sort of kind of digging up stuff around Jerusalem and they said, 
hang on, what have we got here? Oh, it's a bit of DNA. Ah, not that you'd see DNA, but work with me on this. And they go and they say, oh, look, it's Jesus. Oh, we've found Jesus of Nazareth. He's in the ground here. Oh, rightio. Oh, well, who cares? It's a nice religion anyway. It's like, no, it's not. If we found the body of Jesus, then Christianity is dead. You know, this is a lovely little opportunity to come together and have a nice cup of coffee. I've mentioned coffee twice today, haven't I? Maybe I need one. But, but if that's all it is. There's nothing to it if Jesus is still dead and we can find his body. But we can't find his body because he has genuinely, physically, really risen from the dead and he's ascended into heaven and he remains as a human seated at the right hand of the Father. He's alive. He's human. You can't find his body no matter where you look. I remember a couple of years ago I read a book called Cold Case Christianity. A homicide detective investigates the claims of the gospel. It was a great read. It was a guy who was a... I mentioned it to you before, I think, but this guy who said, I am a homicide detective. I'm going to use all my tools of the trade to find out whether or not what the Gospels say in the Bible actually have credibility. And he used the same tools and he checked it all out and he became a follower of Jesus. And he said that even though the stories seem to be slightly different in different spots, that's what you do and it's true. That's how history actually works. And he, it's a big book. It's worth reading if that kind of thing interests you. But the point is in all of this, there is so much evidence, the fact that he has risen from the dead, even though it's hard to get our heads around. Because if he is in the ground dead, then our faith is futile. But the good news is he has risen. And in all of this, we now get the summary of this good news, the summary of the gospel. Romans 1.4, he is Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the simplest summary of all. If someone asks you, what do I need to do to, to be a Christian thing? What do I do? Jesus is Lord. You've just got to believe and live that Jesus is Lord. That basically, that the gospel is summarised as Jesus is Lord. Lord means the one you serve. It's actually the same word that slaves used of their master. You may not see it there. It's kind of a little bit hidden there. But if you're a slave, you have a Lord. So when Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ, he says, I'm a slave of Christ and Christ is my Lord. They're kind of like bookends. They work together, slave and Lord, slave and, Lord, slave and master. When you say Jesus is Lord, you say, you are the one who's running my life and I'm sorry I spend so much of my time running it myself. I throw my car keys to you and I thank you that you are the one who is leading me as my leader, as the leader of the universe. But Jesus' Lord isn't just a personal thing. It is a personal thing. I mean, he's my Lord. But in a real sense, he's Lord of the universe. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone one day will wake up to that reality. And so now it is the time for everybody to work out, to take stock, to give a long, hard look at themselves and say, is he your own personal Lord? Because if you turn up on the last day of judgment and everyone in the universe says Jesus is Lord and you say it through clenched teeth like, oh, Jesus is Lord, I mean, I knew it, but I never did anything about it. I kept myself as my Lord. Then there is eternal hell for you, judgment. And it's a horrible thing. There is time now for you to say, I want Jesus to be my Lord right here, right now. Because life cannot get better than having Jesus as Lord. 
That's the summary right there. And this is the reason that the Apostle Paul goes around banging on about the fact that Jesus is Lord over and over again. And he talks about himself now in verse 5. When he talks about the us, he's talking about the apostles. He says, through Christ, God has given us apostles the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them. What's the purpose of all this telling the good news thing stuff and all that? So that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. What do you got to do with the gospel? You got to believe it. You got to obey it. It's no good to turn up to heaven, so to speak, with an essay saying, I've explained here what it means for Jesus to be Lord. Here's my essay. It's like, thank you for giving me that information, but do you believe it? Do you obey it? Sadly, there are millions of people who are going to front up to Jesus on Judgment Day and they'll know the gospel, but they will not have lived it. They will not have believed it. They will not have obeyed it. And it would have been better if they'd never, ever known the gospel at all, in a sense, because it's by knowing that that they will be even more judged. It's not just a neutral bit of information. Remember a couple of... Oh, was it about a month or so ago? I remember turning up to church or just before and I got a pay, I got an SMS like we all did saying fire risk. You, many of you got that SMS? What did you do with that? It's like, oh yeah, LOL, smart, smiley face. It's like, this is a message I've got to do something with. I can't just read it and think, yeah, whatever. Now, it turns out it was quite a far away, but nonetheless, you've got to deal with that. When you find out that Jesus is Lord, someone says, Jesus is Lord, you know, get an SMS, what are you going to do with it? It's like, yeah, whatever. No, you've got to act with that. We must believe and obey the gospel. You can't sit on the fence. You've got to do something about it. You've got to believe it. And you've got to say, Jesus, I want to throw my car keys to you. I want to give you control of my life because I know that you will run it far better than me. And what's more, you should run it because you made me and you're the Lord of the universe. But ultimately in all of this, right at the end, we see that the gospel brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. We do talk about the glory of God a lot. That's not a bad thing. The Bible's full of it. Because when a person turns their life from being a rebel to being a friend of Jesus, it is a remarkable transformation. I love those stories. I think we all love Stories of transformation. People who bought this, this bomby house that was kind of like falling down and then they go in and they transform it in every way and then the real estate agent comes in and says, this is a beautiful house, I could sell it for lots and lots of money, it's amazing. And you see shows like that. Or you see personal shows where people go through and they have a, a massive transformation. They lose all this weight or they do this or they do that. We like the transformation stories. When a person goes and says, I was once a person who hated God, who lived for myself, who had a life where everything was about me, and I spent my time pursuing health and wealth and success and all these things, and the more I sought after them, the more empty I felt. I'm so rich. I, I'm, I'm so healthy. I mean, look at myself. You know, I'm all this, but I'm not happy. And, and, I'm, and I'm scared about the future deep down inside. And then someone told me 
Jesus is Lord. And I went, whoa. And I believed that message and I obeyed the Lord. And now my life is transformed. Everything's turned around. Now, what do we do with that? In a sense, we just want to cheer the person, run up and give them a big hug, kind of like, you know, woo, sort of thing. But you know who it is that we should be cheering? Who should be receiving the glory and all of that? It's God. It's like, God, you can turn a man around like that. You can turn that teenage girl around from from what she was like to what she is now. It's a wonderful miracle when we see this transformation. And it's to God who should receive all that glory. Right now, we are in the time where the world, if it doesn't realise it's not in control, it really needs to wake up to itself. I'm getting breaking news on my phone all the time, as you probably are. And it's just bad news, bad news, bad news. Fire, blood, virus, Wall Street, blah, blah, blah. It's everywhere. Are we in control of all this? Really? Do you think you're in control? These politicians are running around scratching their heads. They're looking like they've got, they've got no clue in the world. I mean, some will say, you know, they'll tweet, say everything's fine. But I, I don't know if that's quite the case. You know what I mean? We are not in control. And now more than ever, we need to bring our knee, ourselves to our knees before the Lord Jesus and say, you are Lord. I, I wish we didn't have the tragedies this year. And I'm praying that they'll stop. But the Lord has brought them to us. And we should be praying that God would use these tragedies to bring people to Jesus. It's an opportunity we have now to say, you know, it just reminds us we're not in control, really. Yeah, it does. Next time someone says to you, man, what do you think about this corona stuff, coronavirus? Why don't you have a line that's ready to say, it just reminds us that we're, we humans are not in control. Just put it out there and see what happens. Just sort of rest it. What do you mean by that? So, well, it's a time we really need to pray to God who is in control of everything. And then see what happens next. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, so much that you have revealed your Son to us. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord. And we pray that more glory would go to you as people believe and obey this message. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.